The words to which I should like to call your attention this Lord's Day are found in Psalm 34. Take your Bible and open to Psalm 34. And as you make your way there, our pastor is away ministering at a church in California this Lord's Day. We remember and pray for him. And for us here, it's our great privilege to be able to open up and study God's word, to hear him speak, and to sit under him teaching us this Lord's Day. Our message this morning is entitled Biblical Gastronomy. Maybe a dictionary definition would help. Gastronomy, according to Merriam-Webster, the art and science of good eating. Good eating. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we bow before you in all of your glory. And we as beggars look up to you asking for you to feed us bread from your table. Show us your glory. Convict, convert, comfort, conform. We ask this all for Christ's sake. Amen. What is the best restaurant in all of the world? Answer, Guy Savoie, located in Paris, perhaps the name gave that away, Paris, France, overlooking the Seine River, Guy Savoie has received multiple Michelin stars, and from a prominent food critic, for seven consecutive years has won the award, the best, the finest restaurant in all of the world. And for 680 euros, or if the daily exchange currency is correct, $734, you could find out why. Indeed, you could taste and see why. For there at Guy Savoie, if we were to dine there today, we would be served the renowned set menu, 12 courses prepared and perfected by master chefs. Courses that would include the famous colors of caviar, the renowned artichoke soup with black truffle, the Vasco da Gama duck, and the finale, a trolley of ice creams and sorbets and much, much more. Certainly after that culinary experience, as so many have testified, we would join in and say this is the finest in gastronomy, at least physical or culinary gastronomy. But what about spiritual or biblical gastronomy? 
the art and science of eating good, spiritual, biblical food. It'd be hard to improve upon the menu set before us in Psalm 34. You might be sitting here this morning and thinking, this speaker is crazy. And you're right. He is. At least, he appears crazy if you take note of the heading of Psalm 34. This is, after all, written after David had that curious incident when he feigned madness, when he acted crazy before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. This is the scene of 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15, where David changed his behavior, or literally changed his taste. Pretended to be a madman, acted as if he was crazy. Again, this scene, 1 Samuel 21, David is a young man. He has been singled out by King Saul. King Saul wants to hunt him down and kill David. David is poor and vulnerable, so poor and vulnerable that he has recently stopped and begged for food from some priests who were able to put together the set-apart holy bread and feed him and also give to him one weapon, the sword of Goliath, whom David recently slew with the help of God. And you know the phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Here was a desperate time with Saul after David. Here was a desperate measure. David runs for cover down in Philistine territory. In fact, heading into the town of Gath. And as he heads into Gath, likely the residents of Gath are in mourning because they recently lost one of their famous citizens. He was a presence larger than life, indeed a giant figure in Gath. You remember? Goliath? So desperate, David runs and hides for cover in Gath, and as the locals look around and begin to realize and put two and two together, here is the one who slew our mighty man and champion, Here is this infamous David who killed Goliath. Why, they seize him. They bring him before the king. Here in the heading, King Abimelech. In 1 Samuel, you'll find the name Achish. How is it resolved? A personal name and a throne name. Personal name Achish. Throne name Abimelech, similar to Caesar. Similar to Pharaoh. Easy to resolve that. And David, as he's seized and he's brought before the king, what does he resort to? Again, desperate times calling for desperate measures. David resorts to lunacy. You read the account in 1 Samuel. He acts as if he is insane. He acts crazy. He begins to scribble on the doors to the gate. He begins to let saliva run down out of his mouth into his beard. The king, seeing David, he's bewildered. He's confused. He ends up letting David go. David then, freed, further departs to the cave of Adulam. And perhaps there, fresh on the mind, 
Or perhaps as he reflected on this incident, you could say David cooks up and composes Psalm 34. Or put differently, he sings and then serves this psalm so that others might join in and enjoy What's before us in this psalm puts simply a banquet for the soul. Again, this is biblical gastronomy. David this morning is calling all believers to gather and to feast. Let's hear then this psalm. Psalm 34, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away And he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord. You his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We ask then, David, what is this set menu before us in Psalm 34 that we are to gather around and to feast upon this morning Essentially, there are two courses, two hearty courses. And to press the imagery a bit further, it's as if 
he begins in the first course with a bit of an appetizer, and he'll end the second course with a very sweet dessert. The first course then, found for us in verses 1 through 10, is simply this, personal testimony. Personal testimony. Indeed, as David begins Psalm 34, he begins with personal testimony, but you note how he sneaks in first praising the Lord. Here's the appetizer. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Again, as we look and behold the whole course in front of us, and even this first course that's offered to us, David begins on a high note. David begins with a bang. I will, you note his resolution, his commitment, and his resolve. I will bless the Lord Yahweh at all times, and in my mouth will continually be his praise. At all times. Continually in my mouth, meaning every condition, every season, it is always fitting, it is always right to praise the Lord. We do well to take note of that this morning. No matter what our circumstances might be, whether it's just like David a few moments ago, pain, poverty, persecution, it's appropriate to praise God. Or if we find ourselves with prosperity and peace, there indeed it's also appropriate to praise God. But while it's always appropriate and always in season to praise the Lord, as one commentator put it, special mercies demand special praises. Meaning, sometimes the Lord so works in our lives in a miraculous, in an extraordinary way, that it's very appropriate to pause, to mark out, and to single out and give God praise. That's what David does here in this psalm. He's just been acting crazy before Abimelech. He, though now delivered and departed, comes to his senses. He reflects back. He singles out God and marks out he is the one who's to receive the praise and the adoration. Indeed, as we head into verse 2, your translation may not bring it out, though in the Hebrew, the grammar is emphatic. In Yahweh, my soul makes its boast. We hear of boasting, biblical boasting, when the object is God, the object is proper, and it is always right, always appropriate to make much of God. That's what David does. My soul, meaning my whole inner person, my mind, my affections, and my will, all that I am, all that I have, has singled out God, has looked to Him, and joyfully expresses my confidence in him. In other words, here's the hero. Uh, here's the one who ought to be singled out and have the spotlight on. And indeed, how it begins to have a magnanimous corporate effect. The humble hear it and they rejoice. Others are helped by this praise. As Spurgeon said, we ought to talk of the Lord's goodness on purpose 
that others may be confirmed in their trust in a faithful God. You understand that. You look on in other believers' life, you see the special mercy God has given to them and their special praise, and that then draws you in where you want to echo that and give the amen and further join in praising the Lord. So, verse 3, David calls us all, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Join in and let us exalt His name together. Let there be no passive participant this Sunday morning. There's never a place for you and I to sit back passively in the Lord's Day gathering and just let things happen. No, no, as active listeners, as active worshipers, David calls us to join in and magnify, to see God lifted up and shown to be great. Indeed, praise here is corporately contagious. It is infectious. With praise, there is no six feet of separation. Oh, magnify God. Tell how great he is. Oh, exalt God. Lift him up high. Speak highly of him. Boiled down, distilled, what is he saying in these opening verses? I have reason to praise God. And will you not join in with me in praising him? That's his personal testimony. And now he gets to the testimony proper, verse 4. Note how he communicates this. He says, I sought the Lord. I mean, there is intensity here. Earnestly seeking, earnestly praying. I sought the Lord. And when he did that, What did God do? He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. How precious. I sought the Lord. I mean, we look at David in that scene outwardly. He looks like he's lost his mind, but inwardly he is crying out to God for help. And when he cries out, it's as if immediately, with no delay, The Lord answers and the Lord delivers. No hindrance, no delay. With God, it often is just that simple. Note what it is that he was delivered from, certainly delivered from Abimelech, delivered from the Philistines, delivered from Saul. But what does he draw attention to? From all my fears. All my fears. How precious and powerful this is. Fears are the enemy of a believer. And surely David had many. Perhaps you sit here this morning acknowledging I do have fears. In fact, I am quite anxious. Mentally, on the inside, in your mind, tortured by these anxieties. Friend, perhaps the issue is beneath the surface. Perhaps the issue is that issue of fear, whatever stripe and color it might be. Fear of being harmed. Fear of just the unknown. Fear of often, it seems, what it is you and I cannot control. David testifies and he says, I I know what it is to be afraid. 
I know what it is to be anxious and to have fear, but I know what it is for the Lord to bring deliverance from all those fears. If the Lord did that for David, will he not do that for you and I if we seek him and ask for his help? That he prompts us and is calling us to look to the Lord. He says now, verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant. Meaning their faces were lit up, were never ashamed. This is if he inserts this and pauses the testimony simply to remind us often you and I cannot change our circumstances. But what can happen? You and I can be changed in our circumstances. Often always coming back to looking to God and fixing our attention upon Him. As an old preacher once put it, glance at your problems, but gaze at your God. There's this change of attitude. They're made to be joyfully radiant with joy inexpressible. David then continues this testimony. Again, how he refers to himself. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Again, this is quite literally true. To this point in David's life, this is the lowest it's been. He's all alone. He has no help. He's so poor and desperate, no soldiers at his side, no friends at his side, no food, alone, empty. I mean, as he's in that cave after he's found deliverance, he literally is the epitome between a rock and a hard place. Stuck in a cave with King Saul after him. But he says, I cried, the Lord heard, the Lord saved. Note the pattern there. Same as verse 4, same as verse 6. I sought, God answered, God delivered. I cried, God heard, God saved. Oh, what testimony this is. Though indeed we, we pause for a moment and step back and do reflect the way David is communicating this personal testimony. He refers to himself as a poor man. I mean, we can learn from this. Often, you and I, maybe you've done this before, you communicate your testimony, but you've said it in such a way that it's as if you're the hero of the story. As if you're the one who's to be patted on the back and congratulated. Have you ever done this before? Sometimes we do that. We communicate what's happened in our lives as if we're the main story and God gets relegated to some minuscule footnote. Or we communicate it in such a way that we draw attention to the salacious details. We tell it in a way where we really are magnifying, glorying the sin and the foolishness that we committed. David is not to be commended for acting and deceiving those there in the Philistines. Though from a human level we get how desperate he was. But is there any attention drawn to that? Does David communicate it in a way where others would hear this psalm and say, David, you are so smart, so smooth. What quick thinking. How ingenious of you. No, no, in this testimony, and it ought to be true in all of our testimony, all credit, 
all attention, all praise is directed to one person. Who? God. He then calls us. Indeed, here's the essence of this personal testimony, our first course this morning. Verse 8. What's the personal testimony? Taste and see. Taste and see what, David? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, he erupts in the praise, even as he's just further rehearsed how full and sufficient God's care is. Indeed, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them as if in an ever-present way, the Lord and the Lord's servant, there's constant activity, constant care, closer to us than our very own shadow. Rightly then, David erupts, taste and see that the Lord is good. As a Puritan put it, with the mouth of your mind. Take it in, taste and see that the Lord, that Yahweh is good. That the God of the Bible, the one true God, creator and maker of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God is good. We could go into the depths of theology here. He is essentially good. All that he is, all that he does is good. Good that is unmixed, undiluted, perfect, pure, full, Thus, we could call him most good, and so good that it has this magnetic effect. We behold him and his goodness, and we see he is lovely, he is pleasing, he is beneficent, he is compelling, he indeed is magnetic. This is who he is. I mean, you want me to further prove it? It's as if go outside and look up at the sun. Do we need to tell you that the sun is bright? I mean, don't look at it, but you can take that in. In the same way, God is good, and David wants all believers to remember that, to join in and taste and see that this is so. Thus, rightly, how blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Whatever the trouble, whatever the trial, whatever the need that you are seeking him to be delivered from, David testifies with God, here is one who never disappoints. He never underwhelms. He never leaves you empty when you walk away. I'll tell you what will though. What you and I often turn back to thinking it will fill, thinking it will make us happy, thinking that it won't disappoint. What would that be? Sin. We know it. We we sadly have experienced it. Sin always disappoints. It always underwhelms. It never delivers what it promises. But God does. David calls us to taste and to see 
that he is good. You seek refuge in him. You are indeed truly blessed. He goes further, fear the Lord, you his saints, his holy ones. No doubt speaking to believing Old Testament Israelites, but by extension, we today, New Testament covenant church, in the life of faith, we seek refuge in him, we fear him, we experience these same blessings. What happens when you fear him? There is no want. I mean, look at the imagery he gives, verse 10. The young lions, I mean, the symbol in Israel, a young lion in all of its strength, always on the hunt, always finding food and satisfied, the symbol of self-sufficiency. But comparatively speaking, they lack and they starve compared to the one who hides himself in God. With that person, the one who seeks the Lord, mark it, they shall not be in want of any good thing. You notice, well, the connection, earlier he said, the Lord delivered me from my fears, and here David calls us to fear God. The wonderful way this works together, when we rightly fear God, that drives away and dispels the sinful fears that we often trip up over. What testimony, what personal testimony from David? The question is, is this your testimony too? Can you mark out in a special way, special mercy that God has shown you and you can give him special praise that you can not just know that he is good, but you can taste and see that he is good. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet, quite another to taste it and know what that is. Same in the life of a believer. Christianity is not just all head knowledge, notional. God has made us with a head, heart, and will, the whole person brought under the Lord in submission to him. Can you stand up with David and sing, I've tasted, I've seen, I can testify that God is good? Can you stand up and say in your own way, I cried, he answered, he saved can you join in with the psalmist in Psalm 66, 16? Come and listen, all you who fear God, and let me tell you what he has done for my soul. Has he not shown you special mercies that warrant special praise? I mean, after all, you are here this morning. All of the many ways that God has preserved and kept you physically, let alone spiritually, Even to think, if you know him, how he's provided and he's delivered you from the infatuation of self. He's brought about deliverance from love and worship of the world or slavery to sin. Oh, that's the personal testimony that we ought to take in this first course to taste and to see. But it moves us now to a second course. There's the personal testimony, but second, there's now practical teaching. 
I mean, he's woven it in throughout the way someone might enjoy a meal, but then, you know, they're trying to push upon you. No, no, take a bite, enjoy it yourself. Well, now he moves full on into that practical teaching, exhorting us. Again, the personal testimony, taste and see. Now the practical teaching, hear and fear. And he's already said it in verse 9, but he goes further now in verse 11. He will appeal to all, but note how he appeals especially to children. To those who are young. Indeed, this morning, if there are boys and girls who hear the sermon today, God is speaking to you. Every Sunday, when the Bible is taught, God is speaking to you because it's God's word, right? And so this morning, God is saying to you, come and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Maybe as a young boy or girl, you hear that, the fear of the Lord, does that mean I'm to be afraid of God, scared of him? Not quite like that. Think with me, fear has four letters. I'll give you four words that explain what it is to fear God. They all start with the letter T. Tremble. Trust, thank, treasure. Here's what it is to fear God. You tremble. You remember that God is God and you and I are not. And that this God is good and holy and you and I are not. That's why then we need to trust. Trust Him. Trust that He can forgive us and change us, and help us to do what's right. And in trusting him, then we thank him. Thank him for being such a gracious God and good God who would save a sinner like you or me. In fact, that all of our life, every moment, we think about and thank him. And then because of that, we treasure him. Treasure him, meaning he becomes the most important to you, more important than any other person, more important than your mom or dad, more important than your brother or sister, more important to you than anything you own, more important than even your favorite toy. You treasure, meaning you love God the most because this God is the best. That's what it is to fear God. And for you, young child, or for all of us listening in, David will further appeal to us in verse 12 with such a simple, natural longing. Who's the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? You know what he's saying? In the most simple, basic way, do you want to be happy and live a long life? Not temporarily happy, but happy forever. A life that lasts forever. I think we all want to know what that is. And that's all wrapped up in fearing God 
and then in fearing him and knowing him and loving him, because he's our God and our Savior, that then shapes how we live. Hear and fear your words. Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Don't speak mean words. Don't speak hurtful words. Don't speak in lying words, but speak what is honest and speak what is good. We'll further tease out whether it's spoken speech, written speech, typed speech, texted speech, or even inward private mental speech. Hear and fear your words. Hear and fear your walk. Verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Turn from evil. Turn from sin. Avoid it. Don't play with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't coddle it. But run from it. And as you do that, do good actively, tangibly, looking how you can love in deed and in truth and in action, blessing those around you, starting first in the home. Not only that, he says, seek peace and pursue it. Forbear and forgive. Believe the best, hope the best, be patient, kind, don't keep a record of wrongs. Do all that you can, as we even heard recently on Sunday morning from Romans 12, so far as it depends upon you, do what? Be at peace with all men. Hear and fear your words, hear and fear your walk. Why? Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Indeed, this God is ever-present, all-knowing. And if we've tasted and seen that he is good, and we hear and fear and want to tremble, trust, thank, and treasure him, it doesn't matter where we are. Whether we're alone in private or we're with others, he's always watching over us because he loves us. And he honors those who honor him. He cares for those who care for him. Indeed, verse 17, the righteous cry, the Lord hears. And again, he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I mean, from all the trial, all the trouble, and no doubt the sin that's brought to light, and seeing that causing one to be brokenhearted, poor in spirit, contrite of heart, the Lord is near. The Lord welcomes in. I mean, summed up in verse 19, as David begins to end with that final dessert. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. You and I can say yes and amen, we know it, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And we can even go further. How do we know this? Well, God has proven this, proven this with the righteous one. 
For as David writes, verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Maybe just thinking of himself and how God has delivered him. David speaks words with such greater significance for long into the future, the one who is David's son, yet David's Lord, the one who is the greater than David, the one who indeed is good and righteous, the incarnate servant of the Lord, that as the Lord Jesus would hang on the cross and be crucified and crushed for sin, you remember, not one of his bones would be broken. And it's as if the gospel writers looked at this and drew this significance that as God fulfilled this in his ultimate servant, you can think of it like this, a paradigm. If this is how God treated his son and his servant, will he not similarly treat his adopted sons and servants, delivering them out from all of their troubles, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Meaning, not held guilty. Meaning, from Romans 8 verse 1, those who seek refuge in him, for them there is therefore now no condemnation. What a course, how sweet this is total clearance of every charge for the one who can give the amen, who knows this God, who can taste and see and who hears and fears and follows this God. Yes, these words, the psalm ends, they are eternally sweet, are they not? That this is how God treats and acts towards you and I if we know him. They are eternally sweet, but please note for others, these words actually become eternally sour and sore. I mean, for believers looking over the psalm, this just is eternally better and better. But for some whom David singles out, some that might even be here this morning, this actually becomes eternally bitter Who might this be? It's those David singles out as the wicked. Those who would oppress the righteous. Those who do not fear God. Those who are not broken and contrite of heart. Those who cannot say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Is that you this morning? This psalm singles you out and warns you, verse 16, this good God is against you. You want to leave here today with that to be true? He's against you? Such that as you live your life building your kingdom with sand, he says, Waves of eternity will come and will forever wash away any memory of what you've done. Cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
In fact, we envy, we don't envy, we weep for you this morning because you tragically, as verse 21 tells us, it's the boomerang effect of sin. You're living for sin? Be warned, it will always come back and undo you. You see it, evil shall slay the wicked. They commit evil, but that evil comes back and it slays the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. They will be held guilty. And there's no escaping this God who sees all things and knows all things and is holy and is good. What then must you do? You seek refuge in him. You cry out to him and trust that he will answer and he will deliver. The one who is broken and contrite of heart, he will not despise. The one who is weighed down by their sin but cries out, be merciful to me. This is the one whom God looks to. This is the one to whom he sent his son, the Savior, to seek and to save. And our prayer then would be that you could join in and say savingly, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. May it even be for you like it was for John Senek. John Senek was the youngest of seven children who grew up around the Bible But when he hit his teenage years, he rebelled hard against it. Turned away from God, lived a life of sin. But then that sin came back on him. And Senec for two years was weighed down under the weight of his sin. Convicted, agonizing over his spiritual condition. When he was 19, he went to church, and that Lord's Day, the date actually we know, September 6th, 1737, what was it that was read in church? Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And as the service ended and the singing came to a close, John Senek felt the weight of his sin fall off and he was saved. May God save you in the same way if you don't know him today. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, that you even save and welcome into your family, that we can see and behold, that we can taste and see that you are good. Help us all today, Lord, to cling to that. And as we go about this life, to fear you in the way that you ought to be feared. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.